thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you have provided in grace for our salvation through Jesus Christ, given to us a complete canon of Scripture, and that this Scripture inerrantly records all of history. It records the great highlights of history as well as the details of history that we need to know to orient ourselves as believers to this day in which we live. We ask that you would illuminate our hearts and minds to these truths tonight in Christ's name. Amen. We've been uh, starting, uh, last, last time, last Thursday, we started the fourth part of this broad series. <clears throat> and I still haven't got this converted to a decent <clears throat> overhead, but just to kind of review, remember that what each event builds on the, on the previous events. And what we've tried to do is associate great, the great basic doctrines of the Christian faith to these crucial historical events. Because it's through these events that God originally revealed himself. And by studying the details of these events, you load your mind with the imaginative power of the Word of God. Because these events actually happen. This is not just sweet little Bible stories. These are as real as the discovery of, of Columbus in America. So what we want to do uh, now tonight is recall just a few things that we learned back in here when we were talking about the conquest and settlement and the, uh, the accession and reign of David. Uh, as we go into the golden era of Solomon, we're going to increasingly, from this point on for the next four events, deal with what is an area of truth is biblically known as the doctrine of sanctification or the doctrine of Christian growth. And it will be illustrated in a million different ways. But we want to, to get oriented to that. We want to review some basic concepts. And I think I'd like to start by going into the scriptures where we left off last time with Solomon's great dedication prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. This was one of the key chapters in the book of Kings um, because he dedicates his marker, his historical marker. Solomon's highlight in his life was getting that temple built. That temple, the building of it, the dedicating of it, was probably the, the great grand act of his career. Uh, he had some very serious problems toward the end of his life, and uh, there have been believers who have argued that Solomon wasn't a believer, and, but that's because they don't understand sanctification very well. But <clears throat> Solomon, in 1 Kings 8, is praying a very careful prayer. And I guess one of the neat things about studying some of the great biblical prayers is that the first thing that strikes you when you study them in detail is that they were not just spontaneous prayers. Now, we're not saying they were ritualistic either. It was rather that when these biblical prophets walked into the presence of God to pray their prayer, they had approached it more like we would approach going into, say, a courtroom and making a petition. Uh, you consult with your attorney, you, you design the thing to make sense in terms of the law under which the judge worked. 
you wouldn't just go in there and blabbermouth. You'd go in there and you'd have a thought-through objective and you'd have a reasoned presentation. And what you will find when you study biblical prayers is it's not that they're, they're not, they don't carry, carry emotion, because they do. But there's a structure to biblical prayers. And they, they drift neither in one of two extremes. They're, they're neither ritualistic, where they walked in and they read, read it, nor are they just, this, uh, just spontaneous, whatever happens to come to your mind type prayers. They were thought through petitions to the King of Kings carefully constructed. And 1 Kings 8 is, is one of these um, massively well-constructed prayers by probably the wisest man who ever lived, apart maybe from Jesus. <clears throat> but you remember in verse 22, when Solomon stands before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And just to review some of the high points of that prayer, some of the doctrine that Solomon pulled in, just so we, we, we realize that what we have done in this series is we're gonna, we have covered many of these truths that he's pulling out to compose this prayer to God. Let's, let's watch some of the things that he does. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or in earth beneath. So with that one clause, that clause that modifies the character of the God to whom he prays, he has defined the nature of God. And he has gone back to that first event that we studied, creation. And I want you to see this, because when I first pulled these events out, I didn't pull them out of a bag. What I did is I went back through and I did an analysis of the great prayers and addresses of the, script, of the Bible. And I simply went back and asked myself, what did the Holy Spirit emphasize when these great men either prayed a, a very important prayer or gave a very important address? Like, for example, Acts 7 with Stephen. Stephen gives that address. We often think of it as just a spontaneous thing. That was a history lesson. That was a profound history lesson, Acts 7. Stephen must have given thought to that for years. It, it may have come out spontaneously on, by, in the moment of his death, but it was the product of years of study of the Word. It was not something that just happened. Well, this is one of those same kind of things. Solomon has meditated long and deeply about what he's doing here, and we want to track with him. We're in, a, in sort of a schoolhouse in which we're listening to one of the wisest prayers ever made. O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath. You'll notice that he calls God by two names. He calls God God, which is his creator name, Elohim. And then he also calls him Yahweh, that word translated L-O-R-D, capped. So that when you see the name Lord capitalized, capital L-O, capital R-O-R-D, that draws emphasis to the covenant relationship. So he's talking to the Lord in a covenant relationship who happens also to be the creator of the universe. He ties those two ideas together. So it's covenant and creation in one clause. Then he immediately goes on, Who art keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to thy servants who walk before thee with all their heart? Now, there's several interesting things that he's doing there. 
Notice he's characterizing God's behavior. How do you characterize God's behavior? Well, we could say it's gracious, it uh, shows his sovereignty, it shows his omnipotence. But what he chooses to emphasize is God keeps covenant. God keeps covenant. And this goes back to the fact that the God of the Scriptures, while we have studied again and again His attributes, we said He is sovereign, He is holy, He is love, He is uh, omnipotent, He's omniscient down here, He's omnipotent, He's omnipresent, He's immutable, He's eternal, and all the other attributes that people speak about. But these two attributes set up His covenant. The fact that He is sovereign, the fact that He is omnipotent, and, of course, he's gracious, so all of his covenants come out of love. These attributes are emphasized when he speaks and he addresses the creature. And he defines down here some sort of a covenant or contractual agreement. I hope that, that we've mentioned this probably hundreds of times last year and this year, that we, we, we make sure that we always view our God in terms of... His behavior is faithful to what he has said he is going to do. We have a built-in measure of his behavior because he announces ahead of time that he is going to do certain things and he signs a contract. That's what covenant means, a contract. And he agrees that he will do certain things and in some contracts we, will, we are supposed to do certain things. And behavior is measured by those yardsticks, the yardstick of the covenant. So everything is controlled in Scripture. Not controlled by man, controlled finally by God, but it is controlled, and there is a structure. So when Solomon prays these kinds of prayers, and you see the prophets praying them too, realize that these are men who lived in a profoundly pagan world, a world filled with the gods and goddesses of chance and chaos, where they could travel a few hundred miles to the northeast and wind up with... Uh, seeing the Syrian, the Assyrian pantheon. They could uh, travel seven or eight hundred miles southwest and wind up looking at Horus and looking at the Egyptian pantheon. And in all these cases of these polytheistic things, you have the world run by a committee. No one's finally in charge. So ultimately, paganism is always controlled, ultimately by chance, because you never can tell which god or goddess on the committee right now, tonight, is ruling. And even if you did know which god and goddess is ruling tonight in the committee, then you couldn't know next week whether she or he is still going to be running there. And by the way, they had perfect gender balance. They were both gods and goddesses. Now, in Israel, we come over here and we have a covenant god who controls everything, and there's no committee. Absolutely no other voice mentioned. So we have a solitary God speaking a contract into existence. Now, on the basis of that frame of reference, he says, you are keeping covenant and kezid, that word, Hebrew word, loving kindness, translate kindness, that's the Hebrew word which means covenant love, love in connection with a covenant, to thy servants who walk before thee with all their heart. And that's a theme that's going to come out here. <clears throat> Part of the covenant that we are talking about is the Sinaitic covenant. And you remember the Sinaitic covenant is a conditional covenant. It has cursings and it has blessings. Blessings for people who positively respond, cursings for those who negatively respond, and there is no choice. 
The Sinaitic Covenant defines the kingdom of God. It tells Israel, I am your king, says God, and you go along with the program and you get blessed. You fight me and you're going to get cursed. Because I intend to bring this nation to a glorious conclusion in history and I'm going to do it. And if you fight me, then I'm going to drag you kicking and screaming toward that goal. And it's going to hurt. But my goal, that is God's goal, my goal will be attained. So the Sinaitic Covenant is important because of its structure. And we want to kind of map that structure tonight just a little bit against some of the previous covenants. So far we have studied the Noahic Covenant, or the New World Covenant we called it, and we said that that covenant is an unconditional covenant. In this sense, that it was made, to, and, it, and it outlines the providential reign of God in the physical universe. That covenant is what we need to think of as Christians when we study science, study physics, study chemistry. Don't get snookered by this thing that is, is repeated ad nauseum, and we, we use it in our own vocabulary, and we have to be careful about this, this phrase, natural law. There is no such thing, folks, as natural law. Think about it. Nature makes laws? Who makes laws? Who made the natural law? The natural law, what we call natural law, is really, if you think about it, based on observation, is it not? If it's based on observation, what have we observed? God's providential reign. So what we get, we get slightly paganized here, when we think about natural law, what we really are looking at is a description of how God has behaved. And the fallacy that we studied two years ago in Genesis and all the rest of it was that because we see him behaving this way now at this era of history, we think he always behaved that way. When the Bible says, no, he didn't always behave that way. At times he speeded processes up and slowed processes down. What about the long day of Joshua? It wasn't an optical illusion. It was a genuine case where the Bible says the sun and the moon stopped. Now, that is the statement. Now, you can have all kinds of explanations for that. But the drama of it was, what? What was God trying to do in that long day? What was he showing Joshua? Joshua had got himself in a mess, and the, you know, he got in the wrong covenant, and he was all screwed up. And so he, he got caught. His army, he, he, he got snookered into protecting people he shouldn't have even been in a relationship with. But he promised them. He, he went ahead. He carried out a man of his word. And he said, okay, I promised I'd help you. And so now he goes into it, and he gets involved in a big war, and God comes to his aid at a very critical time. And the point there is, the Bible carefully adds the note, little footnote in the verse. It says, there never was a day like this before, and there never has been a day like this again. Now, I submit to you there's been optical refraction going on for centuries. That wasn't what explains that day. That day was a unique day in the history of the cosmos. Never had astronomical bodies behaved that way. You see, we have a problem accepting that because we start in the wrong place. We think what we really have is natural law, and then God and men both obey this natural law. That's false. 
we submit to what is called natural law, but it really isn't. It's God's covenant rule. And the Noahic covenant is a revelation of His rule from the time of Noah to the time of the return of Christ. The Noahic covenant specifies certain things. It guarantees, for example, the existence of planet Earth. And that's why we never have to worry about an asteroid breaking up the planet. No asteroid is going to break up, might hit the planet, cause a you know, disaster that way, but the planet Earth is going to be around. It's got to be, or this covenant's broken. So, we don't care about what astronomical theory that's involved. We just know the Noahic covenant guarantees us certain things. So, this sets up the environment. Then, inside that environment, we have the second covenant, which was the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of election in which God began a missionary maneuver in history. He abandoned all other cultures and set up and focused his program from this point on through a nation called Israel. Why did he do that? Because he was prejudiced? He did that because all nations had rebelled against him. All nations had forsaken him. He didn't have to work anymore with anybody. I mean, be thankful. He started, with, started all over again with somebody new. That's what we ought to be thankful instead of fussing about it. Why did he pick the Jews? We, that's not the approach. He chose to work through the Jewish people. He brought them into existence with Abraham and through them the scriptures and so forth. So that's the covenant that guarantees the world, the seed and so on. We studied that. All right, that's the election. So that guarantees a certain destiny to Israel. Now, the question is, even though Israel's destiny is guaranteed, the problem is that every believer or every Jew in Israel isn't necessarily part of the Abrahamic covenant. Only those who have responded to the electing God are the real seed of Abraham. And to control the further life of Israel, he adds the Sinaitic covenant. But when he adds the Sinaitic covenant, it's given to the whole nation, which includes believers and unbelievers. So we have two parts inside that Sinaitic covenant, and it's not guaranteed that the unbelievers are going to convert. There's no guarantees there. So when the Sinaitic covenant comes in, it simply addresses the nation, God is going to rule this entity, including these guys and these guys. And he says, blessing for positive volition toward God and cursing on negative volition. And those are the terms of his rule. The Sinaitic covenant isn't what gives Israel her destiny. Now watch this. Don't mix up the two covenants. This covenant describes cause and effect in her history. It doesn't guarantee anything. The Sinaitic Covenant doesn't guarantee the destiny of Israel. That is guaranteed by the Abrahamic Covenant, not the Mosaic Covenant. So, when Solomon is talking about shoving kindness to thy servants who walk before thee with all their heart, he is, he is talking about those, obviously, who are responding. And when he says that you are keeping covenant, he implies that he is keeping the Abrahamic covenant, he's keeping the Sinaitic covenant, because it's the character of God. The, the issue of the covenant here isn't so much as it's the keeping of covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God. Who has kept thy servant, my father David, which has, uh, has promised him, because now, remember, we have another covenant that comes into play, because out of the core of believers comes David. 
And David is going to be used to reveal what does leadership look like, what does the king look like in the future, for this future time down here. And this revelation comes through this king, and he is protected by DC, which is the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant focuses on a blessing up here. Remember the Abrahamic covenant had a seed, land, and worldwide blessing. That little seed promise of the Abrahamic covenant is now amplified in this Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is further revelation. So the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants plug together. Both of them are unconditional. Both, uh, the Davidic covenant is an unfolding of that earlier Abrahamic covenant in certain details. And we, there's some other covenants too, but we'll get to them later. So now Solomon, having, having richly, in verse 23 in his prayer, already basically analyzed history as a covenant-driven thing. It's not random. Then he says, You have kept with your servant, my father David, that which thou hast promised him. You have spoken with thy mouth and has fulfilled it with thy hand as it is this day. Because on this day, what's this day? The day the temple was dedicated. And what did God promise David would happen with David's son? Remember, David wanted to build a temple. And what do we find out? God said, no, I'll build you a temple. And then we'll let your son build me a temple. And the temple God built David was what? a living temple, the temple of his seed that would go on forever and reign. So, Solomon is sharp. He, he remembered what his dad taught him. And now he recognizes that God has given an opportunity in history. And it's not just something that happened that day. The thing that we want to see about this rich and deep prayer is that what happened that day when that temple was dedicated was a, was, a, was a day in the life of all these covenants. There was a whole chain of events that was going on all through the wars of the conquest, all through Saul's time, all through David's time. And Solomon was conscious of that chain of moments. And he recognized that this day, which he dedicated that temple, was a momentous forward step that God was making. That's where you can get emotional. See, you can have an emotional response, but the emotional response isn't floating in a vacuum. It's not detached. It's carefully in response to this exciting work that God is doing. People who have this view of history are powerful. It's this this what gives you strength to keep on going on. When everything falls apart, what keeps you going is the fact that you know how the game's coming out. And you know and have confidence that God reigns through all of the chaos, through all the details. That's what's going on here. Solomon is a powerful person. Now he says in verse 25, Now therefore, O Lord... Now here's the petition in his prayer. Keep... With thy servant David my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let thy word be confirmed, which thou hast spoken to thy servant my father David. Now, now he had carefully studied the fine print in the contract. Let's go back to the contract. Hold the place there and turn back to 2 Samuel. When God gave uh, the covenant to David, and it's back in 2 Samuel uh, 7, 
Notice verse 14. Now, here's how it originally came to David from God. Verse 13, or let's go back to verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. See, see what it's doing? Solomon's tracking with this clause, these clauses in that Davidic covenant. His prayer isn't just something he thought of that day five minutes before he got up. It says... He will build a house. Was Solomon building a house that day in 1 Kings 8? Yes, he did. He finished it. This is the dedication. So he says, ah, this, is, this fits. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. See, there's the father-son relationship of the Davidic king and his God. By the way, that's the first time in the scriptures where you have father-son relation really come out in its, in its glory. <clears throat> but notice... Attached to verse 14, there's another clause. And that clause in verse 14 sets up the destiny for 1 Kings chapter 2 through 10. The whole life of Solomon, the whole structure of the golden era is set into verse 14 here. Here's the clause that controlled probably 40 years of history in Solomon's life. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with a rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. What word did Solomon use when he was setting up his petition in his prayer? Oh God, you covenant keep and loving kindness. Do you see how he latched onto that? Now let's think of why did Solomon latch onto that in his prayer. Because this is the neat stuff, and this comes out in the New Testament, but I always like to go to the Old Testament sometimes because in the Old Testament it's fresh, and I don't know, I learn a little bit more sharply by looking at the Old Testament because I guess I'm too familiar with the New, and I have to get hit with it from another angle. Here's, here's Solomon's situation. This circle represents his security. This circle represents... The fact that God, through the Davidic covenant, has secured his throne, his dynasty. Solomon operates from a position of strength, at least at this point he does. He remembers this Davidic covenant. But he also is smart enough to know that this doesn't give him license. Same problem we have with Christian life. He also knows that down here is a circle of his obligations. These, this is what God does. This is what he ought to do. These are the commands, if you will. Now, he may do God's will. He may not do God's will. But whether he does God's will or he doesn't do God's will at any moment doesn't change this. This is a historic promise. This goes on, regardless of whether he gets up on the right side of the bed in the morning or the left side of the bed. So his security and the life of the dynasty doesn't hinge on every little moment of his life, whether he's in fellowship or out of fellowship in this, whether he confesses a sin or he doesn't confess a sin. However, this verse in the verse 14 of 2 Samuel <coughs> says what happens. If Solomon gets out here, is God going to let that go on? And if not, why not? 
Well, let's think about it for a minute. If it's a father-son relationship, and the father has a destiny for his son, because the son may disobedient. You know, you have children, at times you sit there and, and you can get embarrassed by what they do. And you know why you're embarrassed? You, you feel like going through the floor sometimes or denying the, their heritage and saying they must be somebody else's kid, can't be mine. But you can't do that. And that's what precisely is a parent that makes you embarrassed. Because no matter what these clowns do, it reflects on you. Period. And you can't escape that. Well, see, that's the same thing with God here. Solomon is his son. So the family relationship never gets ruptured. God can get very embarrassed as a parent. And so therefore God has a way of handling that problem. It's called discipline. And so God disciplines the son and Solomon knows that God is going to do that. At least at this point in his life he remembers that. So understand, when we go back now to 1 Kings 8, there's a dynamic that's working here. Solomon understands his position before God, but he understands if he gets out of line, God will discipline and notice something else, because we picked this up when we went through David's confession. This is just kind of an, a repetition of what we did with David. One of the problems in confessing sin, particularly if it's been a, a real ripper, you've got all the social after effects that come with it. And the problem is, when we confess our sin to God, by the way, now, we can, we can ask forgiveness from those people who we've hurt. That's, that's another issue. But when we confess our sin, as David made clear in Psalm 51, it is to God and God alone, because it is God and God alone who calls the shots on what is right and what is wrong. It's not society. See, if the problem is, if we think that we're violating social rules, and that's all it is, what we have done to ourselves spiritually is we've submitted to peer pressure. We're back to where we were when we were teenagers. Everybody wears, you know, red pants. i got to wear red pants. Everybody dyes their hair green like the Harford Mall crowd or something. Uh, then I have to dye my hair green. That's all peer pressure. It's going along with the crowd. And God doesn't want us to go along with the crowd. God wants us to go along with Him. And we have to get it through our heads that ultimately the control here is God's law, God's absolutes, and not what society dictates. So when we go to confess, what we're doing is we're confessing to God for violation of these things that we should have done and didn't do, or vice versa, we didn't do what we ought to have done, haven't done what we should. The confession is made to God. Now, if we do that with conviction, and we're convinced, yes, we, I have sinned against God, and yes, he has a case against me, and yes, were it not for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, I could go to hell. If I come out of that conviction, and I deal with this, and I go before God, and I go back to square one when I became a Christian, and I realized there's cross, <laughs> that's why I continue to be saved. That's my security. And I am forgiven... <clears throat> At that point, the problem is that I have all this crud, after effect, and debris, and pieces, and garbage that I have to walk through still, because that doesn't go away. Rarely does that go away. So I still have to walk through the muck. When I do that, there's a tendency to think 
about, you know, four days later, see, day one I've confessed, and then about the fourth day into this mess, I get my eyes off the Lord, off of His grace, and onto this mess, and what other people think of me, and what happens? Now I begin to get the thought that God, too, hasn't forgiven me. And once that thought is slipped into our hearts, faith dies. You can't trust the Lord if you think He's angry with you. There's no way you can trust His promises if you think He's ticked, because then you're saying to yourself, well, you know, His promise is there, but He's not going to keep His promise to me. You see, you can't get the faith engine going, because now we're back to a works situation. And what subtly has happened is that we bought into works. So we started here with grace, because we realized we can only be forgiven by God's grace. We march down, and then the fourth day here, we're in the middle of all this chaos, and we get somebody says a remark, or somebody looks at us the wrong way, and we get our eyes on the situation, and while we're back to works. Now we think to ourselves, I've got to do penance, I've got to do 84 and a half good works today to negate all this, and then the next day I'll do some more good works to negate this. And that's just a lot of religious baloney, because we've, we've totally wiped out in the area of grace and faith. Well, Solomon faces this problem too. And the problem he's going to face is that he knows he's secure. He gets out of fellowship. He sins against the Lord. He can confess his sin, but he's still going to get disciplined. Now, the discipline can occur before confession on a timeline because maybe we're out of it over here and God applies the discipline this time as a wake-up call. You know, yoo somebody home down there? And he has to do that, and you know, we, we, we all can cite embarrassing things that have happened to us in our lives, things that maybe happen privately, so things that happen publicly, where God had to kick us from you know where to get our attention. And then we confess our sins, and then he still may continue the discipline because he wants to teach us something. He maybe want to teach other people something. In David's case, uh, the principle was that the leader... If he, fooled, if he fooled around and he messed up, there would be some very dynamic, heavy consequences from that. And that's a lesson. It's a lesson all that David's sons had to learn. It's a lesson the whole dynasty had to learn. So, it was pedagogical. But it wasn't judicial. It wasn't that God, for years afterwards, every time David lost a son, one, number two, number three, number four, it wasn't that God was punishing David judicially to exact some sort of a blood atonement out of his sons. That wasn't the point. The point was that certain disciplinary procedures had to occur because of who God is. He wants to teach not just us, but those other people around us, the rest of the body. So, we all are being taught through this disciplinary process. And that's why it's sobering. That's why Paul in the New Testament says, if you're a church elder and you're a leader, and you know, that's one of the stickiest things that I would personally hate to be. Thank you, Paul. Uh, that, I hate, uh, it's just a discomforting thing to have to be a leader and step into a mess and administer discipline. And it's hard to do. And you, you, you have to do it because this is what God says. And yet, sometimes you don't want to. And there's torn emotions there about that. The, it'll help to realize that when we're doing that kind of thing, we are not exacting a legal, judicial thing. We have nothing to do with that. 
Discipline by, by the elders of the church body is a, is a pedagogical thing. It's part of the hand of God. It's a wake-up call. It's a discipline move. But there's no atonement going on. I mean, good Lord, if, if church discipline is part of atonement, we've lost the atonement. Because now we've interjected works again. It's some sort of uh, ecclesiastical procedure now that's substituted for the finished work of Christ on the cross. Is it finished or isn't it finished? It's finished. can't be added to by some church act. So all of these things, whether we, we get discomforted by doing them, but part of the discomfort comes from, well, gee, who am I to judge? But it's not that kind of thing. It's a pedagogical thing. It's an enforcement thing. It's a parental thing. It's parenting. God is the ultimate parent. So, when Solomon now, coming back to 1 Kings 8, you'll notice what he says. He says, If only your sons, verse 25, If only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked. He's quoting the 14th verse of 2 Samuel 7. Then he asks that thy word be confirmed which you spoke to my father David. Well, Solomon may not. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But you know what he was doing here in this prayer? He was ensuring that he would be disciplined the rest of his life. Because he brought down the terms of the Davidic covenant willingly and of his own volition on himself and said, treat me, O Lord, the way you said you would treat David's son. So later on, God has a way of discipline. David, uh, God disciplined Solomon, and Solomon in a different way than he disciplined David. The two are two different men, two different lives, two different sin patterns. And the discipline's different, but it's still there. So, we, we've gone through this, this exercise in, in introducing Solomon and the time of his, of his 1 Kings 8 thing. What I want to do now is go to 1 Kings 4. Oh, before we go to 1 Kings 4, just as a, as a kind of... Um, uh, uh, quickie on getting an idea of this golden era that we're talking about. Go down in this chapter to verse 62. <coughs> in verse 62, look at the statistics of what was going on at the dedication of the temple. Now, just think of this. You're a movie producer now, and you've had an assignment. You make a set and show on camera this thing. So you start reading. Hmm. Now the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord, and Solomon offered for the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep, so the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Well, I guess so. Now, if you talk about a bloody mess, can you imagine just the magnitude of this thing? That's what it smacks of is the tremendous wealth that these people had. You see, by this time in history, the Jews had prospered. Every historian that I've read in this period of time makes mention of the fact that at this point in Israel's history, they had something rare in the ancient world. They had a developed middle class. Most ancient societies had the very wealthy, and then you had the, the poor. And um, 
we've had one of our young people write a paper on the law and how the law in Israel is different from the law outside of Israel. And one of the things that she noticed was that in the law outside of Israel, there's a dual standard. If somebody runs into problems and they're in this class, they get treated one way. If they're down the poor class, they get treated another way. In Israel, it's classless. The only class distinction you find in the Mosaic Law is with slaves who have been come in from the outside. But here, you have a developed middle class able to afford 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep, and willingly dedicate this to the temple. So that's, that gives you some idea of the size. Now, to get more idea of the golden era, let's turn to 1 Kings 4. Some other kind of introductory statistics about Solomon. Start in verse 20. It says, Judah and Israel was numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And notice this little phrase in verse 20. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. That's not condemnatory. That's a description of their economic blessing. This is a time and Israel was blessed like crazy. It was one of the highlights of the national life at this point. Solomon ruled. Now think of the Middle East today. Think of the Middle East today now. Think of the countries that are enveloped in verse 21. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river. The question is what that river is. Most people think it's the river <coughs> that's <coughs> now it's a dried up wadi um, between the um, Negev of southern Israel and the Nile. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served, excuse me, that river there in verse 21 is talking about the river up the north end, the north part in Lebanon area, beyond Lebanon. <clears throat> so he ruled from Lebanon, the land of the Philistines is along the coast, the border of Egypt. So today that would be all the land of Palestine. It would include Syria. It would include southern Lebanon. It would include part of Jordan and then down probably inside the present boundary of Egypt. That's how big Israel was at that time. Solomon's provision, now look at this little statistic. Solomon's provision for one day. Now, this is the provision for his palace and uh, for the um, <coughs> uh, temple life. His provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, which I take it is somewhere like 10 bushels, 10 facts, uh, fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. One day. That's what the temple consumed. Every day. 365 days a year. Tribute flowing into the temple. He had dominion over everything west of the river, from Tepsha to Gaza. Over all the kings west of the river, he had peace on all sides about him. See, one reason why the nation could be prosperous? They weren't in war. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Now, some more statistics. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. 
And those deputies provided for King Solomon and all came to King Solomon's table. Each in his month they left nothing lacking. They brought barley and straw for the horses, swift steeds to the place where it should be, each according to his charge. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom. Now notice this, verse 30. Don't take this lightly. Verse 30 is a statement. And if you're at all interested in ancient history, please take verse 30 carefully. Remember verse 30 when you study history. Because you're going to get all this... The way the secular person in the classroom teaches this is Israel's always kind of sidelined, some little dicky nation down in the ancient world that some people question they existed or something. And, and that's always trying to downplay the existence of God's nation. It's always been that way, always will be that way until Jesus returns. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the East. That's the Mesopotamian plain. That's the great Babylonian and Assyrian civilizations that were known for their wisdom. He surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all men. And now, interesting, in verse 31 is a list of his contemporaries who were Gentiles. Unfortunately, we don't know more about these guys. But here is an actual catalog from other nations in secular history. He was wiser than these particular individuals. His fame was known in all the surrounding nations. Now, you remember verse 31, that last clause, because next week, or we won't have class next week, but the week after next, we're going to come back to that. In fact, in two or three weeks, we're going to come back to that. There's a, there's a little footnote to history on some of the ripples that Solomon started that we still feel in our genius. He's a musician. I mean, what is it this guy didn't do? And the book of Ecclesiastes, remember we're going through it, all the things that Solomon built, two navies, by the way, one to patrol the east side of the world and one on the west side in the Mediterranean. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows on the wall. What does that make him also? A botanist. He also spoke of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. What does that make him? a zoologist. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who heard his wisdom. Now, was he an important man or what in ancient history? And that's why in your thinking, if you want to get an image in your head of what this is, and you like to read history, and you like to read biographies, the best parallel biography I can suggest to read, if you want to go to encyclopedia or something, would be Leonardo da Vinci. He probably, in our civilization, comes closest to Solomon. That guy was into everything. Reads and art. He sketched helicopters, boats, submarines. I mean, this guy was a genius. Anything he did, besides painting, besides anatomy, besides all of his drawings. <clears throat> so, Leonardo comes closest to Solomon. But I don't really think that if you put them against each other, I still think Solomon would beat him. Because Solomon had a lot more different areas that he was expert in than even Leonardo da Vinci. So, this gives us a glimpse of some of the great riches and wealth of, of Solomon in the Golden Era. One other chapter in Kings that also is sort of a catalog of these profound days. Um, if you come over to 1 Kings 10. This is this mysterious woman. 
that is debated in history, who she was, 99% of the historians think she's a queen from some little Arabian country. I'm not persuaded of that, however. <clears throat> if you change and alter the chronology of secular history and realign the timelines, uh, as Emmanuel Velikovsky did years ago, um, what you find out is, is that this queen has another identity. If, if this readjustment of the chronologies is right, and the word Sheba is preserved in the middle of the name of one of the most famous women of Egypt that you all have heard about in the last 48 hours since the massacre of the tourists. Remember in the news story that just happened? Where were the tourists slaughtered in Egypt? Before the tomb of Hepzetzan. And they, some of the news commentators were actually erudite enough to tell us a little bit about, uh, about Hepzetzan. But in the news stories of this tourist massacre, um, these gunmen came out from her temple. Note the middle of her name. P and B are interchangeable. So it's suspected, if you alter the chronologies and you buy into that, that this queen is not a little queen from some Arabian offbeat province, but she's none other than the grand queen of Egypt. And she led a very interesting life, this queen, because she went, according to her chronicles, she went to a place in the midway in her reign called God's Land. And scholars of Egypt history can't figure out where she went. But she went to this strange place called God's Land. I think it's East Africa somewhere. <clears throat> and she goes to this land and she meets these impressive wise people. And she comes back with a list of things that she got from this land called God's Land. And strange as it may seem, <clears throat> the list parallels 1 Kings 10. But historians can't believe it's the same woman because they lived at different times in history if the chronologies that we're taught in history classes is right. But if we alter them, it seems to fall into place. The other interesting life about Queen Hepzetzik is she goes back and she does something which is not really known, but she, she disturbs profoundly the religious life of Egypt. She does something to alter the temple in Egypt that really hacks off the priesthood. And she, either she dies in oblivion or she dies as a hated woman. Hated not because of the population. Apparently she's a very popular ruler. But she was hated by the bureaucrats for something that she did to the temple worship. It's also stated that she had a son by the name of Tutmos III. Tutmos III aligned himself with a priest. And what he is known for in history is taking plaster and going everywhere his mother had, had, had a, a monument to her and plastered over it with himself. And so for a long time, nobody knew there ever was a woman on the throne of Egypt until accidentally the plaster started falling off some of these things and they realized that's not Tutmos. Underneath there is, lo and behold, there's a woman here. And that's how Queen Hatshepsut's reign began to be exposed and the plaster started falling off some of these, some of these things, these monuments. So this queen comes to Solomon and she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue. Now you see, that tells you right away she's not just some little sweet sister from the desert. She's bringing quite a, quite a lot of stuff. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And Solomon answered all her questions. 
And if she was that queen of Sussex, think of her education and training. She was a learned woman. She wasn't, she wasn't somebody who didn't know what was going on. She had a very good classical education. And she had a lot of questions about life and history. So she decided, I'm going to go over to Israel. I'm going to find out from this guy, Solomon, what's going on. Nothing from the king which he did, <clears throat> nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, and think of the fact that if she'd come out of Egypt, she had her own temples and pyramids. But when she'd seen this temple, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters in their attire, his cupbearers, his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And then she said to the king, It's a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I didn't believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. The half wasn't told me. See, that's an expression we use in our language. The half of it wasn't told me. This is where that expression comes from, by the way. Queen, queen of Sheba. <clears throat> and behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I have heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants. And notice verse 9. Very interesting spiritual dimension to this woman. And blessed be the Yahweh, the Lord your God, who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king. Now what in verse 9 tells you immediately that this woman is one shrewd lady? What has she picked up on to allow her to say that particular phrase? That tells you that she's understood something. What? The covenant structure. Suppose she might have talked about history to Solomon. And Solomon was telling her how history proceeds under the grand theme of the God who made heaven and earth, among whom there is no equal, including yours, queen. And that this God that created the universe, the heavens and the earth, as he was witnessing to her, he may well have led her to the Lord. This may be a confession of faith right here. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. See, it's those notices that convince me that this woman is not an ordinary desert queen. Now look at this for another little tidbit on the golden era of Solomon. Literally, the golden era. The weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents. Well, now, if you take 666 talents, and the question is how much is a talent, but just suppose that we use a small talent, which is 30 kilograms. 666 talents per year times 30 gives you 19,998 kilograms. 2.2 pounds to a kilogram, something like that. That gives you 43,956 pounds. Multiply by 16 ounces and multiply by $300, which is about the price of gold today, and you come out with something like uh, over, well over $200 million in solid gold a year for 10 to 15, 20 years. Can you imagine what his treasury looked like? Now, what do you suppose this did to the economy of Israel? It stabilized it. They didn't have paper money like we do. You talk about a gold-backed currency. This whole nation was put in a tremendously economically powerful position because the national treasury was so enormous. There was a, there's an economic momentum to this thing. 
Now, lest some of you think that, ooh, we're getting very materialistic. What did I say last, a week ago? What is one of the signs of blessing under the principles of the Sinaitic Covenant back in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26? Remember we listed them? Economic prosperity. Economic <coughs> prosperity <coughs> under the Sinaitic Covenant was a manifestation that God was blessing. Economic deprivation... Now, this is nationally speaking. It's not saying that everybody was blessed and, and all the good people were blessed, the bad people. It's, it's the collective, the nation as a collective entity here. Now, look what else. Besides that from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold in each shield. And it describes what he made. Verse 18, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps to the throne and one round top to the throne at its rear, arms on each side. Twelve lions were standing there and six. And all of Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None of it was silver. <laughs> See? The, the, the scriptures can't give us enough to say that this was the wonderful time, the renaissance of the nation. Now, I haven't even covered the thing that was mentioned earlier in 1 Kings 4, but I'm just going to close tonight with a little uh, addition to show some of, of the literary accomplishments of Solomon. I have here a Hebrew Bible, and those of you who have been with me some Thursday nights, you, I think I mentioned this a couple of years ago. The Bible, the Hebrew Bible, has three parts to it, the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the writings. They, if you look at this thing, it won't correspond to what you're having in your lap. As far as It has all the books in it, but the books are in a different order. So let me show you what the books are and see if you can see, notice something. The first five books are the same as ours, the Pentateuch. Then the thing called the prophets begins with Joshua. And it goes Joshua... And then it's Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then all the minor prophets down to Micaiah, Micah, and Malachi. Now, why do you suppose Joshua and Judges are considered by this Bible to be in the same section with the prophets? Well, the answer is because what are, what is the prophets, what are the prophets doing? The prophets, by the way, Hebrew Bible starts in what we would say the backwards side. Back here is the law. Here's the Torah, right here. On top of the Torah are these prophetic books. And what are the prophets' job in history? To administer the covenant. They are the testimony that whose behavior is being measured. All right, now this third part of the Bible is called the writings. Now here's a strange collection. And we, we leave you with, with this, this collection. And, and why is it that these books are collected together? Uh, one of the books here is Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, um, Esther, Daniel. Daniel? thought Daniel would be a prophet. Um, Nehemiah, Ezra. Chronicles. Now, what is going on, and why are these books gathered together? Now, if you take a college course, 
in the Bible, where they try to tear it apart on you, what they're telling you is that the reason that all these Bibles, because these are the late books of the Bible, they, they approach this canon as though it's chrono chronological. But this third section of the, of the Bible actually is the third section that depicts what wisdom is. And on page six, if you look at there, um, I quote Robert Gordas, who was a Jewish rabbi. And we'll end with that quote tonight. All the books that I just told you about are either describing what wisdom is or they're an artistic expression of wisdom. Psalms, expression of wisdom. Proverbs defines what wisdom is. Ecclesiastes, a deep and profound philosophic thing. Song of Songs, marriage and sex are mentioned there, quite explicit, by the way, in the Hebrew. English translations try to tone it down, that's too bad, because we should understand that that's a big part of our lives, and there ought to be a place in the scripture where, where it's discussed. And yes, it is discussed there, if you can get through all the translation problems. So you have the Song of Songs. Then you have books like Daniel. Well, why is Daniel in there when you think Daniel ought to be in the prophets? Wait a minute, what do we say the prophets were? They administer the Mosaic Covenant to what nation? Israel. Who's Daniel talking to? Gentiles. Daniel was a what did he function as in society? What would we call Daniel today in our society? Foreign minister, right? He was involved in a, as, a, as an advisor, maybe the National Security Council of the King. He was an advisor to a Gentile king. And why? He was a wisdom man. He was giving wisdom to a Gentile ruler. So hence, even though he has prophecy, the real function of the book of Daniel is political wisdom. How does a king rule in the light of God's prophetic program? Well, anyway, look at Gordas's conclusion here in this footnote number one on page six. When the full scope of Hebrew wisdom is taken into account, it becomes clear that the third section of the Bible, which I just showed you, the Kethubim, that's the Hebrew word for writings, the Kethubim, is not a miscellaneous collection. Remember I said, well, why are all these books in there? It is not a miscellaneous collection, but on the contrary, possesses an underlying unity, being the repository of wisdom. Both the composition and rendition of the Psalms require a high degree of technical skill, which is kakma. See that word kakma? That's wisdom. Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes obviously belong in a wisdom collection. Lamentations is a product of kakma in its technical sense. It's a poem of lament with a wise artistic literary structure. The book of Daniel, the wise interpreter of dreams, obviously is in place among the wisdom books. Solomon then brought into existence the mighty architecture, the mighty economy, and he was the, really the fountainhead that drove the generation of the great literature of Israel. Well, next week, if you will look at um, the, the, read those chapters from 1 Kings 2 to 10, and what we're going to look at next week is how wisdom builds culture. We want to look at it as Solomon's, or not next week, two weeks. Um, we want to look at how wisdom generates culture. Because the next thing we're going to do is we're going to go back to the doctrine of sanctification and ask ourselves, where does wisdom play a role in our Christian life? It's there, but where do we see it in our day? So we'll start with Solomon, build from him, and then 
import it and come, come on over to the Christian life. Father, we thank You for Your blessings that You extended to us through this great plan of Yours in history. We thank You for Solomon, for his life, and for how You worked through these people. We thank You most of all for preserving the truth down through the, uh, down through the era of history when men naturally, in our flesh, would have suppressed it and destroyed it and simply um, buried it. But You kept it alive. You constantly kept your testimony to your character before our eyes. And we thank you in Christ's name tonight. Amen. We'll play with them if you have any questions. <laughs> yes, Debbie. Um, Oh, you mean when they adjust the chronology? The chronological adjustment that we're talking about is this. All through the ancient East, the, the pottery and the, the dating system, they keep using the words late, middle, and new. In Egypt, Egyptian history is viewed like this. Old, middle, new kingdoms. Generally, the exodus is supposed to have happened there on that time scale. The problem that I have with this, as a, as a Christian who believes the Bible, is that this was precisely the time when Egypt was the strongest. And there's not a shred of evidence inside Egyptian history that anything profound happened then. And I can't reconcile the fact that we have all these notices in the Scripture about these plagues, and everything, and this Pharaoh loses a son. Uh, his army basically get, half gets wiped out in the Dead Sea, and there's nothing, a Red Sea, and there's nothing there in Egyptian thing. Of course, the answer is, well, it was there, and the Egyptians didn't like to talk about it, so they suppressed the history. But there, there's some more problems with that. Um, if you go back to this point in Egyptian, this, this, by the way, Debbie, would be 1400, and that would make Solomon down here at about 900. And they say that the, we'll see Solomon had a son, Rehoboam, and this civil war started, and then uh, they got invaded by Egypt, and they call the pharaoh that invaded here, Pharaoh Shoshank. Um, and so they think they have a match. Belikovsky, back in the 60s, pointed out a few fallacies here. He has not been accepted. I mean, he, this, this chronological revision was later repeated by a Seventh-day Adventist scholar called Donovan Corville. And he wrote a two-volume book in which he tried to revise the chronology the same way. And now I understand there's a guy in England that just had his book reviewed on BBC that's trying to do this. But Velikovsky went back to this point, the end of the Middle Kingdom. And he noted that there was an Egyptian poet that described what for all the world looks like the plagues. That was that papyrus Apur that I mentioned last year in connection with the Exodus. Then there was the Dark Ages in which Egypt went down in history and there was a group of ruthless people that invaded Egypt from the northeast called the Hyksos. What Velikovsky argues is that the Hyksos that we know from Egyptian history 
the, their, their, the name Hyksos is an alter ego of what we now know in the Bible as the Amalekites. And so, where did, where did Israel encounter the Amalekites? It was after they left Egypt and they came on the, on the, on the, e, on the destruction. Egypt had, had been destroyed by the plagues. They walk out of Egypt toward the east and who do they encounter but this people that are coming down called the Amalekites. Egyptian history says that something happened, ended Egyptian Middle Kingdom, it collapsed, and they were occupied in the northeast side by the Hyksos. This period of time would account for the fact that during the conquest and settlement, there's not one mention from 1400... See, what we do then, Debbie, is we move the Exodus to here at 1400. Solomon would be up here, 900, so that when Solomon... Uh, Solomon's right about here, just as the new kingdom is starting. And the Bible doesn't, doesn't have one reference. You can check this out in your courts. From the time of Moses to the time of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, there is not one reference to Egypt as a contemporary power. Why? Why, if Egypt is strong, surely they had interactions. I mean, good grief, Solomon's known all over the world. And the Queen of Sheba pops up from nowhere. So, what happens is that Velikovsky pushes, to answer your question, Velikovsky pushes Egyptian history backwards. Oh, excuse, no, no, he pushes it forwards. Excuse me, pushes it forward. Makes the Middle Kingdom come forward to 1400 instead of back earlier. And Donovan Creville, who is a conservative Bible believer, believes that this kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the Old Kingdom are mirror images of each other. That what we've done is we've confused dynasty listings and that the, this one is the name of the other one. And that further collapses down the time period for Egyptian history. But you get into this stuff and you get... The problem is, the more you get into it, the more you see it's a largely built on conjecture. It's like astronomy. And we say, ooh, look at light travels 186,000 miles a second and so on and so on, so therefore the universe is this big. Well, how do we know that the speed of light is uniform in space? So that's what you encounter here. It's the same thing. You get squishy when you get into dates, to lock up dates. The, the, I was told when I took a biblical history at Dallas Seminary that the last date that you can really put any weight on from the secular side is 700 B.C. Once you go earlier than 700 B.C., now speculation builds on speculation because we don't have any clocks. So what we have is king lists. The problem with king lists, like dynasty so-and-so, dynasty so-and-so, dynasty so-and-so, king, 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 king. The problem with that is we don't know if those king lists have the same problem that the book of Judges has because there's a debate among Christians that there's not enough time for all those judges and judges to be chronological. Some of them may have reigned like this, while one was in one part of the country, another one was in another part. They could have been contemporaneous. And that's the same problem you get into with these dynastic lists. Secular historians don't like contemporary co-regions. What they want is they want to string them linearly. And that's, that's the debate, whether they're linear. So it just basically gets back to the fact that, like everything else I've studied in my life in these biblical questions, you, the deeper you get, the more confused you get because you get into the real experts, the guys that are real honest, not the high school science teacher or something. 
um, you get into the people that really know their business, and, and they say, well, gee, you know, we really don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure I remember the details. It, somehow it's very, very fuzzy to me, whatever happened to Queen of Setsuk. I just know that she died in obscurity because her son covered her up. He, he hated his mother. Oh, yeah, yes. Oh, yeah. That, that, that what you're talking about is, goes back centuries. You remember back years ago before the communists screwed it up in Ethiopia, there was a man called Haile Selassie. And he was, he was emperor for many, many years, for decades, in Ethiopia. His code, his alter ego name was the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, the reason that, that is, is that the Coptic church in Ethiopia, which is south of Egypt, traces their lineage back into the Old Testament. Now, remember, there's an Ethiopian in the book of Acts that brings the gospel down to Ethiopia. But before that guy was led to the Lord, there were believers, Old Testament believers, down in in Ethiopia, according to tradition. And they, that's where this Jewish business came up. They claim that they are part Jewish. And they do that because they claim that Queen Sheba came back pregnant. And she had a baby, and that baby was, had Jewish blood. And that was because, and then that led to this. Now, I, I haven't studied that whole tradition. I just have studied enough to know that there's a very strong tradition in Northeast Africa. Well, that's, that's the theory, that, that she did something. And th nobody understands why this woman, who was so brilliant, went off to God's land, came back, and then started altering things to the point where she really ticked off political enemies. Well, I say it makes sense if she went to Israel and Solomon led her to the Lord. And she came back and she realized that this pantheon has to go. But the problem was she couldn't just walk in there and destroy it because the priests ran the country. I mean, it was like they are the government. They are the bureaucracy. So she must have had to wheel and deal her way in. But it became obvious that this queen, this was reigning queen, wasn't too supportive of the bureaucracy. And they probably resented her. And, and we still don't, I, I think it's true, that we, we don't understand why her son hated his mother. You know, it, it could be a psychological thing, but... They think it's more to it than that. That he was ashamed of what his mother did or something. But whatever it was, boy, he had a problem with her because he, he just buried every memory he could find of anything his mother ever did. So, history is exciting, and I think it would be so neat if we could see all this fit together. Because to me, we're being taught history wrong. To me, the glorious God of the Scriptures has had to have shown himself repeatedly in history. 
And the fact that we don't get reports of that mean either those reports are buried or we have totally misinterpreted history. Revisionism is as old as Adam and Eve. Yeah. And that was what we studied two years ago. That's why I entitled the part two series, Buried Truths of Origins. Because man wants to suppress the fact that he's responsible to a creator. So we conveniently forget that. As uh, Cyrus Gordon said, um, the human race is afflicted from time to time with collective amnesia. Okay, um, it's getting late, so uh, we'll see each other um, two weeks from tonight.